you know, you have these moments where you might be walking uh, to the dining hall, you might be walking to the bus, and you sort of you can look left, look right, and you go, this is the peak of physical humanity there is. Welcome to a very special series of Realising Your Potential from Accolade Wines. At Accolade, our purpose is to enrich everyday moments through our amazing and award-winning wine brands. The driving force behind our business is people. And as a proponent of community, we believe some of the most powerful learning comes from people sharing their own stories. In this series, we continue to explore the topic of high performance by speaking to those involved in elite sport and are privileged to also hear from those involved in one of the most exciting communities, the Paralympics and Olympics. I'm your host, Ange Murphy, Chief People and Communications Officer at Accolade Wines. So join me as we explore this fascinating world of elite sport. In today's episode, I speak with James Rook, Olympian, Cox of the Australian Women's Rowing Eight, and recently returned athlete from the Tokyo Olympics. James Rook, welcome to Athlete Wines, realising your potential podcast series. It's really great to have you here. So I thought it would be a great time while you're in hotel quarantine for us to catch up about your experiences um, leading into Tokyo and at Tokyo and then post-Tokyo. So welcome. Hey, Vance. It's good to see you again. Can you just initially start off with us to give us a recap on your path to becoming the Cox of the Australian Women's Eight um, that you just participated with in the Tokyo Olympics? Yeah, so I started coxing at school when I was probably at the end of year nine, so maybe 15 or 14 at Scotch College in Melbourne. And I pretty much loved it really as soon as I started. Um, I progressed through school really well. Um didn't ever make the first date or even the second date in my year 12. So I was in the third date, so third best Cox, but um, really just had a pretty big passion for the sport and I really enjoyed it mainly. Um, so I decided to go to a club with one of my mates and we ended up going to Mercantile Rowing Club and got some initial success there. Um, definitely had my fair share of failure at that club. Um, you know, in, the, uh, in my second year at that club, I really struggled to even get a, a club crew um, and then uh, just through some persistence and the guidance of a lot of people at that club and others um, progressed quite quickly and uh, in about a three-week window I went from not being able to get a club crew to being the Australian men's aid cox it was you know it was a pretty cool three weeks there where I just started kicking all my goals and a bit of timing helped me out and uh, and then I, I did a year with the the men's eight um, in Canberra and then competed internationally at world champs and I uh, got a silver medal and a Cox pair, which was unbelievable. And then the next year, um, through some deselection of the men, actually um, turned out to be a bit of a blessing because I found a, a great spot and a great um, relationship with the women's team. So I then became the women's eight Cox. Um, thankfully, there was a ruling change after uh, the... 2016 Olympics from our international committee that allowed men to cox women and women to cox men. And I've been with the women ever since. And um, yeah, then got to head off to Tokyo. So it was a pretty, pretty cool progression and yeah, very lucky. Fantastic. And when we last spoke, I remember you said that um, you had a note in your room on your whiteboard. Can you remind me of that story? Yeah. So in um, when I was at school and probably my first year of rowing, um, we had 
a we had two Olympic we had two ex Scotch boys Josh Booth and Will Lockwood competing um, for rowing at the London Games, and we were watching um, we were watching them compete. There was a great atmosphere at our at the school and at the club uh, specifically at the boat sheds, uh, watching them race and just really really enjoying it. And there was a sort of a bit of a moment where I said, you know what, like that is something I'm going to do. That is unbelievable. That is really awesome. Um, I want to do that. So I went home that day and got a, a permanent marker and wrote in my cupboard uh, on a whiteboard that I had said Tokyo 2020. So yeah. And pretty cool to have set that goal so long ago and, and um, actually been able to compete and Josh Booth was on the same team. That's so, you know, that was pretty cool as well. And I love the fact that you said that you, when you were at school, you, you know, Cox the third eight. And I love that. And, and then even just the story around not initially getting a gig that for that period of time, Coxing, that it doesn't necessarily mean you have to be in the best boat or the best team. You know, it's just really perseverance and hard work um, and a little bit of luck maybe sometimes and things work yeah, out. Yeah, definitely. I think it's, you know, it's a bit corny to say, but it really is quite true in almost anything. Like if you set your mind to it, um, you know, there's obviously things that fell my way, you know, there was people that retire at the right times or, you know, like deselection turned out to be an amazing thing for me on multiple occasions. But, you know, if you do work hard and you set goals and you're clear and you're open to feedback, then honestly, you actually, you really can almost do anything. I'm really interested to talk to you about the challenges that the team faced leading into Tokyo and particularly, you know, parts of the country going into lockdown. How did the crew handle that in your preparation? Our preparation was was pretty awesome, to be honest. We had almost no one really out of the boat for an extended period of time. We were really lucky with injury and great management by our coach, really. Um, a lot of credit to him. So we have um, World Cup regattas that we always go to over in Europe each year um, and we couldn't go over this year obviously so we had to do World Cup replication regattas two of them in Penrith where we train uh, and one of them in Wirealong Dam in Queensland it wasn't actually COVID related but then there was a massive flood in Sydney and so the water quality in Penrith actually became too dangerous to row on that lake so we had to go to Ngambi and then we went to wire along for another regatta and then we went to South Australia for the other one and it was you know it was crazy so a lot of travel there and then in our last week of training in Penrith the Sydney outbreak had just begun and so we were keeping an eye on things it got to a point where you know we thought we would be all right and, and I think in general Sydney didn't quite think that it was going to kick off the way it did and then all of a sudden, uh, there was a point where we said, okay, um, this is going to be our last session here in Sydney. And we found out that morning at training, um, we said, okay, we're going to go for a row and then we're going to get off the water, load the trailers, and um, they're just going to start driving to Rockhampton, which was where we were going to do our final preparation for Tokyo. Um, and then they said, they're going to fly us out the next day. And then later that day, they said, oh, no, I think we're going to have to fly out tonight. And then we were told, okay, no, we can't get a flight, so we're going to have to go tomorrow. And then at about 9 p.m., we got the final message saying, we can't get you out of Sydney tonight, but you need to get out of Sydney. So we want you all to drive to Canberra and make sure you get over the border before maybe 1 o'clock in the morning. 
And so we then had to make sure everything was packed. We left and probably arrived in Canberra with about 20, 30 minutes to spare before like the border shut um, and then got up to Rockhampton. Look, thankfully we got everyone there, but it was a hectic 48 hours of just like, oh my God, this is our final hurdle to do, to get to Tokyo. Um, this is going to make life a lot harder if we have to be locked down and everything. So yeah, very lucky to get out of there. And how many weeks was that before you left for Tokyo? Four weeks. Four weeks. So we had, we had a, a three-week um, d- uh, pre-departure camp in Rockhampton. Um, Rockhampton's climate was a little bit warmer and it just allowed us a nice stepping stone for heat acclimatisation to go to Tokyo. Yeah. And then those um, simulated regattas that you did, my understanding was that they were fully simulated like you were in Tokyo. So you had to, like, wear masks to the venue. And was that correct? Yeah. yeah so we... Um, we simulated everything down to uh, you. The only reason you could leave your room was to go to the dining hall, or um, we allowed ourselves to walk to the course mainly because um, we knew that we would be able to at least walk outside in Tokyo inside the village, but we would have to wear masks. Um, and then just practicing mask hygiene. So, for example, um, actually not using reusable masks that often unless they're a certain standard. So actually using single-use masks, something as simple as when you go down to the water, uh, we had to wear masks. And then um, when we got into the boat and take our masks off, you have to treat the mask as if it's got COVID on the outside of it. So you take it off, put it into a Ziploc bag, close that Ziploc bag, put it down in the boat, and then go for your session, and before you come onto the pontoon, get out a clean mask, open that up, put that on. So, And there was a lot of stuff that we just weren't used to. Mm. So practising that actually made it fantastic because when we got there, they really we didn't have too much worry about mm. how, how our mask hygiene was. Um, yes. we, we felt actually relatively prepared, so yeah. that was good. And how hot was it in Tokyo? Was it hot? Was it oppressive or was the acclimatisation? Yeah, you, you walk outside and you're just sweating. Yeah. Um, it was 32 most days and about 70, 73 minimum percent humidity. It was hot. And did you cool down your bodies in any way? Well, we did a lot of heat acclimatisation preparation. So we actually, um, our um, sports scientist um, got onto Facebook Marketplace and all these different places and he ended up buying a greenhouse for us and bought all these portable heaters and we had a greenhouse set up just outside of our shed and all of the portable heaters in there and we put our ergos in there and we would end up doing ergo in the heat chamber uh, simulating you know, 70% humidity, 33 degrees. Um, so we were doing a lot of that and then when we got there, there was... Um, because of COVID, COVID protocols, there was no ice bath at the venue, but there was ice bath at the um, Australian house in the village. So we did a lot of pre-cooling um, with slushies. So slushies help uh, do pre-cooling internally. Um, we had ice vests. We also just had ice towels. So you just get an esky full of ice and water, put towels in it, microfiber towels. And just even putting that over your shoulders or around you really makes a massive difference. Yeah. Um, so we did a lot, a lot of that um, before training, after training, before racing, after racing. 
Um, and it makes a big difference, made a massive difference. The Olympics were so much different to what we've ever experienced before. And, you know, having no crowds or family or friends there to support you, did that make a difference? I mean, what was what was the vibe like? What was the environment like with no crowds? Well, you see, it was interesting being in the eight um, with a cox and also all of those other coxes. It's a pretty noisy environment anyway. Um, the eights race is... It's, it's a very different race to other boats um, in the ways that it's almost a confidence boat. Um, it's loud, it's big, and you really embrace that. Um, and so you'll actually hear coming out, of, coming out of races that, you know, you watch the pairs go past and it's quiet and they'll just go all the way to the finish and you just won't hear anything. But in an ace race, the rowers are almost responding just as loud as some of the coxes are and there's a lot of communication and noise and to be honest in the last 500 of a race at world champs you don't really hear the crowd unless you're almost in lane one so it wasn't actually too different for us the biggest thing obviously was that you didn't have your friends and family um but then on the finals day there was still a lot of athletes and a lot of um and for the eight we're the last event so all of the um, rowers that had already finished were there cheering in the stands. We had all of the coaches. So it was actually still some sort of environment for that. Um, but I guess, so it probably makes a difference for some of the smaller boats that race, that have their finals first. So no extra athletes cheering. But um, for us, it wasn't actually too different. It was probably just that our friends and family couldn't be there. And, yeah. you know, that's disappointing. But um, there was a lot of support, you know, um, from back home. We definitely yeah. felt that. You talked about the village. Can you give us some insights about what the Olympic Village was like? Were there cardboard beds? That's my key question. They were cardboard beds. Um, they were the base was cardboard and it was engineered like there was lots of little struts and boxes underneath. It was all connected and it was actually pretty stable. Um, like there's a lot of videos and stuff about people like jumping on them, trying to break them, and like they're actually pretty stable. Like they did a really good job, and hey, it makes a lot of sense because you know. Being recyclable and just throw it straight out and yeah but um the the village was for oh, it was unbelievable um i almost find it difficult to explain what it was like but there was this sense of just joy from both uh everyone in australia but just the rest of the world you walk around and everyone's just so happy to be there you, know, you have these moments where you might be walking uh, to the dining hall, you might be walking to the bus and you sort of, you can look left, look right and you go, this is the peak of physical humanity there is, you know. Um, oh, look over there, there's um, Novak Djokovic. Uh, look over there, there's Sun Yang, the uh, basketball player. Oh, there's Paddy Mills. Um, there's this, there's that. Oh, look, there's Aspar, you're going for a walk. Um, or you walk around, you see these, um, you know, Ethiopian marathon runners doing laps around the village, going for a run, you go, wow this is bigger than ben Hur. Mm. um and the so we had all of these individual houses so they were um uh big apartment blocks um and the bigger countries obviously got their own houses um and so our house was um the australian house but then the top four floors were countries like fiji 
and Tonga. So it was like an Australasian, um, it was like an Australian and Pacific Island house. Um, and so down the, on the bottom floor, we had, um, there was the boxing kangaroo cafe. So there was a guy with a brister who was just consistently making copies all day. And it was really, really great stuff. Like any kind of milk you wanted. Um, and then there was uh, cafes for us to make our own food and this and that. And yeah, it was unbelievable. And, you know, recovery rooms uh, where you could sit down on a beanbag and watch the Olympics were on or, you know, a media room where you could sit down and people would play cards. And it was awesome. Um, so you'd walk around, you always had masks on, but, you know, you'd just get into the elevator, you up your room and you'd say, oh, hey, like, you know, what sport are you? And you just have this full chat and all of a sudden you'd be really invested in someone you've never met, but you just totally invested in their, in their um, campaign. And, um, and you shared this mutual understanding of how hard it was to get here, but how awesome it is that we're here. Yeah. So it was, yeah, it was special. special. Did you get starstruck at all when you saw Novak or um, anyone? I, I think I'd get really starstruck. I don't know if I'd know how to handle it. So seeing all those sports people. Well, it's funny, like you sort of, I know you notice them, but then you're also, I'm not really here to, you know, go and chat to you guys. I'm here to do my job. Like, it's almost weird. Like, we're all on a level playing field, which is weird because um, you think those guys are just bigger than Ben Hur or something. But, um, you know, there was a, a fun moment in, um, in the Australian house at one of the little cafes. I was making a coffee and then Paddy Mills walked in, right? And, um, he started making coffee. I said, Oh, hey, mate, how are you going? He said, Yeah, you're good, mate. Like, how are you going? Like, what do you, what sport and this and that? And we were just having a chat. And um, at the end of it, it was like, we were just chatting like normally. He was interested in what I was doing. I was interested in what he was doing. Um, and I did think at the end, like, actually, I've got to get a photo of this guy. This is pretty awesome. So I, I sort of thought, Okay, how do I, how do I get this done here? I said, Oh, mate, you, you probably get like heaps of people asking you for a photo. So, um, do you want to do you want to get a photo with me? Uh, he laughed and thought that was funny. So now we've got a cool photo. And I suppose you've all worked as equally as hard to get there, yes. Yeah? So really, it's a lovely yeah. color. Yeah, it doesn't matter if you're Novak Djokovic or someone else. Yeah, there's a nice sense of unity and like uh, common respect for each other. Yeah, so it was good. Before we turn to talking just about the actual racing that you went through, can you actually articulate how proud it is to wear the Australian emblem on your chest and to represent your country? Like, I'm so proud yeah. of you, um, you know, just, and I feel really honoured to speak to you. And I think particularly in this game, yeah, because I think yeah. the whole country appreciated your efforts because most of us were in lockdown, so it gave us some sort of hope and inspiration. Can you articulate the feeling of what it's like to represent your country? Put it this way, I remember receiving my first ever Australian duty in 2017. So it was my first ever um, Australian rowing campaign. I was 19 years old and I remember receiving the Zooty and going home that night and I put it on in the bathroom and I was looking in the mirror going like, this is it, mate, you, you've done it. Like, you know, um, it's just incredible. And I think each year you definitely don't, take it for granted but there's a certain sense of okay like yep i've done this before and you get almost more and more task orientated and um really goal focused and 
I don't think it really set in until I was there at the games and you get all of this extra kit, you get all of this like big bags full of things and in here there's a boxing kangaroo. That is so awesome. And you're sort of looking at, I remember looking at the boxing kangaroo going like, you know, it's the fighting spirit of Australia. It embodies everything that, you know, we're about. And just a real sense of pride, but also, um, you know, quite humbling that I had that opportunity to do that. And, you know, that came through a lot of hard work, but also a lot of people behind me. And there was a real sense that, you know, everyone there and all of us, you know, we had 25 million people like on your shoulders backing you up Um, more so than everyone. You know, Channel 7 did an unbelievable job with their coverage. And, you know, we really felt that support as well. And it was it was cool. And, I mean, you're right, yeah, everyone really loved the Olympics. I think for, for us here, having, you know, know you, uh, we were super, also super excited because we'd be going, what time's rookie racing would be the call in the house <laughs> every time we knew the eight were up and we'd all sit around the television um, and w- watch the race. So it was quite nice to uh, to have that connection with you. Let's talk about the race. So your first race, you didn't qualify for the final, so you had to go into a repercharge. charge. Um, how how did you deal with that? I'm assuming that would have been disappointing um, for the crew initially, um, you know, and then how did you deal with that and how did you get yourself ready for that second opportunity to get into the final? Well, I think um, going in, we always spoke about um, executing our best race um, on that very first day. So how were we going to do that? What was it going to feel like? What did we need to do? Um, and it was really about staying internal, but being, yeah, executing our best race. Um, and so I personally remember going in, uh, going through the warm up and the warm up lake, um, which is just off the side, uh, can get really, really busy. So there's a lot of eights. There was the men's eights out there and yeah, it was pretty hectic and pretty frantic. Um, and there's certain situations where, you know, boats are coming towards you, this and that. And there's probably a bit of cat and mouse between coxes to, you know, start to push people around. And so it can get um, relatively frantic. Uh, and we had, a, we had a fair few people that were relatively new um, to that. You know, not everyone in my boat had raced in the eight. And racing in the eight, part of the experience of not only the racing, but it's like what it feels like in that warm-up, like it's louder. It's bigger, it's, it's, there's more bounce. And so I don't think we dealt with that particularly well. And, um, you know, I, I think I was probably caught up in my own arousal and excitement. I, I personally was just so ready in that first race. I was like, yep, I'm, this, is, this is the one. I'm going to really smash this. And then probably got caught up in my own emotions and excitement that I, I probably missed a few cues from the girls to go, well, I think a few of them are getting pretty nervous now. Like I might need to tone this in and reel them back in. And, and so we got to that first race and really just um, went away from what we said we were going to do, which was, you know, there's some technical cues that we really knew we needed to execute and uh, flat out just got, um, you know, overcome from the moment and missed the mark and 
and, and, and really didn't perform very well. And so I think going forward from that, we had a really clear understanding about what we needed to do. It was just the fact that we needed to execute it. And so there's a few cues that we worked on, for example, showing a little bit more verbal support in the warm up to each other. So even just a little, like they talk about, like a pat on the back, you know, a, a verbal cue of yep, uh, or, uh, you know, calling someone's name, like I'll go with you. It makes an unbelievably huge difference. Um, and there wasn't a lot of that. There was a bit of into the shell. So something like that, where we just went, right, this is what we need. Um, and then into the next race, you know, we, we did that much, much better. Um, we still had a lot of room to move, but yeah, so we all had a pretty clear sense of what we needed to do better. Um, and it was just about being the best version of us. We just wanted to execute the best race we could. Did you feel more settled in the second race, in the repercharge? Once you got that first one, as you said, there's a, some people who hadn't raced in the eight before. I mean, I wouldn't even be able to articulate how nervous I would be if I was rowing at the Olympics or doing anything at the Olympics. Do you think that in a way the second race you were a little bit more settled or does it, does it not matter? I mean, we were definitely clearer. Um, with and and there was much more of an understanding about what we needed to do. Um, I think our second race we were definitely better. Um, however, we still were just not quite there yet, and not really doing what we set out to do. Um, our main focus was, you know, we needed to. There's not one individual that can do this by themselves, um, and that's kind of the beauty and the beast of the eight. Mm. Um, it's noble it's noble to want to go by yourself and you know really lift with an individual effort however in the eight if you do not coordinate that with others so if you don't include people in that it really just doesn't work and it actually ends up being a negative thing Mm. so and that's quite scary to go and it's a hard thing to go I can't just go by myself I need everyone else and it's that coordination of others and that you know it's really it's the team team attitude towards it that you need and so we just weren't quite nailing that even in the second race it was positive that we did it better um but then i guess we we became even clearer and i think straight up we just became more desperate in that final uh we were desperate to just achieve our best race and and it wasn't about desperate to you know, we wanted to win a gold medal. We wanted to get a medal. We wanted to do this. We wanted to do that. But actually at the top was we wanted to be desperate to achieve the best result we could. We wanted mm. to be the best we could. What role did your coach play in those two races as you led into the final um, in terms of helping you through, you know, those races and not executing as well as you should? I think... Um, our coach did an unbelievable job. You know, I got along with Westy fantastically and, and he's taught me um, so, so much this year. And I think he learned along those races with us and was able to reflect. And, you know, we don't, there wasn't a need to change the plan because our main focus and our main downfall was that we weren't executing our plan too well. So it was just the reinforcement of, uh, and reinforcement and simplification of what we needed to do. And so he did a great job of making sure that his messaging stayed quite simple and, you know, relatively direct and, uh, you know, helped us 
to stay on track and, and, and maintain some confidence about what we needed to do. So, yeah, Westy, Westy did a great job of trying to keep us on track and, and just continue to try to build more and more confidence, you know. And your last race was great. I mean, I, I thought it was an amazing effort, um, the, the way you performed in that last race. How did you feel after the last race? Um, I guess, you know, like crossing the line, there's uh, like, I'll be totally honest, it was absolutely devastating. Mm. Um, when you initially get over, you don't, you don't have time to process like how amazing of a job you did over four years or five years and everything you've done right and, and everything. You just have the result and that's the initial. And the result was that we were, you know, probably coming second for a fair chunk, probably the entire first K, which is over 50% of the race. Um, and then still coming third, probably maybe even a close, close second at 1500 to 500 meters to go. And then just couldn't hold it together and got rode through by, you know, China and, and the US. So there's a, there was a, initially it was gut wrenching, um, because, you know, it was right there. Um, and that'll probably stick for a while. Um, I think that we did a much, much better job, really threw it out there. And we're super brave to do what we said we were going to do. Um, we definitely could have done things uh, technically a little bit better in the second half. And I think the one of the only ways we could have fixed that was probably to have a little bit more international experience, which wasn't possible, and to maybe have that race, that braveness in the heat so that we could build on that again. Um, because as said, every single race we did got better and it was almost like we needed another race to get better again mm. or we needed to just have a better race earlier. But, you know, that's just not how it works. So I think now having a look on reflection, we've had great debriefs, understood what we needed to do, what we could have done better. And, you know, um, even to now, we're still debriefing about the entire five years and what did, what we did really well and what we could do better. Um, but, and we'll probably still, for months to come, debrief. And I think that it'd be hard for me to kind of get over the result. I think maybe it's okay to not get over it um, because we probably could have done things better. And all you want to do is do your best because then you know nothing's up to chance. So it's going to be a tough pill to swallow. But, I mean, to be honest, it's, you know, it's an incredible opportunity to learn and, and just get better. Um, and that'll, that'll, that'll set me up for many situations going forward in life, really. Yeah. Um, I have no doubt about it. And I think sometimes those things that are the toughest to take, to, to, to deal with or to, to live with or to sit with, maybe is the word, is the ones that actually we learn the most from. Correct. Did not being able to participate in other championships leading into um, the Olympics because of COVID, do you think that hindered your performance in any way, not being able to know where other crews were at? Because I know that in Europe a lot of the crews participated in a world championships, mm. didn't they? Do you think that had an impact or not? Uh, you know, I think it definitely did. It definitely did have an impact. Um, but it, when we race internationally, I don't think that you get, you obviously have an understanding about where other people are, but you don't, that's not really the biggest benefit because at the end of the day, you actually can't control what they do. Um, you've got zero control over what they do, really. 
Um, but all all international racing does is give you confidence and it gives you um, more and more understanding about what it takes. So if you go out there internationally and win a race, um, all of a sudden you go, right, everything we're doing is working. We need to make sure that we continue to do that and almost try and get better again. And if you don't quite, if you go out there and make a mistake and you don't win or maybe you don't make the final or something like that, then you just have such a great understanding of, okay, in the race when we're moving, you know, what was working, what didn't work, what did it feel like, um, you know, and if you can go, oh, I had the best race ever, you go, okay, we're probably just off the mark. Or you go out there and you say, yeah, we really didn't technically execute. Oh, I wonder why that was. Uh, maybe it was, you know, this or that or this or that. And so the experience and knowledge you gain from racing, um, it's not about what you learn from the other crews. It's about what you can learn for yourself. And we can try and replicate that as much as we can, which we did. And I think we did really, really well. We probably couldn't have done that any better. Um, but there is just no substitute for international uh, racing experience. Um, and, you know, it was interesting because more often than not at this Olympic Games, crews that won or did really well actually went through the Olympic qualification regatta. So they were crews that failed to qualify in 2019, but then had to do the last minute qualification to get there. Um, so our women's quad had international racing experience and qualified and then ended up getting a bronze medal, which was unbelievable. And, mm. and the Kiwi men's eight, they in 2019 failed to qualify for the Olympic Games and then just their federation said, you know what, we're going to throw all of our eggs in this one basket. We're going to go for the eight. They had to go over and qualify. So they got racing experience. They came home. And then out of nowhere, they won the Olympic gold medal. It was ridiculous, you know, and, and, and a lot of that has to come down to, you know, I think something needs to be said for the fact that, yeah, they, they got to race this year and um, there was definitely others that did, but um, it definitely helps, yeah. There were typhoons in, um, in Tokyo and the rowing schedule got moved around a bit. Did that interrupt your, your psyche in any way, the kind of moving schedule? I think um, in the moment, no, not really. Because you're just so conditioned, we were just so conditioned to, yeah, stuff happens, stuff changes, like schedules move, we've got nothing to do with it, so just get over it. Like, I mean, it's almost a choice. You can either let that distract you or just get on with it because it's yeah. still a level playing field. So I don't really think um, it affected us. Maybe, maybe looking back, um, our physical preparation definitely would have been different if we'd known that we were racing either a day earlier or a day later, so we wouldn't have done certain things on certain days. But in the end, I don't think that affected us too much. Or at least I don't think we let it, we don't think, I don't think that we really allowed ourselves to believe that it did. Whether it did or didn't, I wouldn't have thought so, but maybe. But we definitely didn't allow us to think it did. So we, we maintained really quite a positive and, you know, rational outlook on all of that. How did you prepare for the final? And do you have any kind of rituals as a crew or individual that individually yourself that you go through to prepare and get yourself in the right headspace? Yeah, so, well, I think the day we uh, woke up at about 5 o'clock or probably maybe 4.30 and our bus was at 5, 5.30 in the morning. So a bus takes us down and then we do a pre-row. So our pre-row is 8Ks. Um, we go through... Uh, warm up on the water and 
um, a couple of technical cues, uh, a couple of drills that we do on the water and getting our body primed by doing a little bit of race pace, so higher, higher intensity work, very, very short, you know, probably a minute maximum and split into two. So, you know, a relatively short amount just to prime our bodies but also prime our minds to understand what we're going to go out there and achieve. Um, and then getting off the water, we probably had a couple of hours to just chill, relax. We were really lucky with um, Rowing Australia. We were able to secure a, uh, a rowing, uh, an Australian room within the rowing venue. So we didn't have to really worry about COVID in that room. We could uh, have our food, chill out, do a bit of stretching. Um, and actually, you know, before the final, on the on the last day, it's only the eights that are racing. So it's you and the men's eight. And there was a really awesome point um, about two hours before the race. So about 30 to 40 minutes before you're going to leave the room and go to your boat. So you're starting your physical warm-up. And we started to play some songs that we really liked and started playing Aussie songs. And there was a couple of moments where we were all just singing together. And, you know, we were singing stuff like, oh, I come from a land down under and, you know, Johnny Farnham, like two strong hearts. And, you know, we were singing these songs and just really enjoying the moment. And, um, you know, that was two eights that didn't get the results they wanted. Um, but, you know, we were really staying in the moment, enjoying the moment and doing everything we could. And so that was that's an experience that I'll never forget for my entire life. Mm. Um, just being able to share that with the men's eight was awesome. Um, and then we do our warm up on the land, go down to the boat about 50 minutes before the race. And, you know, our coach goes through a little chat and I probably gave the girls a pretty serious rev up and, you know, started to get the, get the juices flowing and try and get under their skin and really fired up. And, uh, we get on the water, do our warm up 45 minutes before we push off, uh, warm ups on the water, do everything. Um, and I have, um, I don't believe in superstitions, but I um, I have an attitude towards coxing. It's you know steer straight and and be on weight. Um, steering straight uh, helps not slow the boat down, and it you know that's part of your job. And then being on weight the same. And being on weight for me is not particularly easy. I work pretty damn hard at it, um, both physically and with my diet. And so I have a spanner that I take out in the boat and that's just in case something is loose so I need to tighten something in the last minute and it's a I call it a, it's, a, it's called a rigger jigger and it's got yeah. a 10 mil 10 mil on one side and a 13 mil on the other side and four years ago after the 2017 world champs in the Cox pair and the eight I was taking that spanner out with me and I thought well I mean, this is just extra weight. So I actually threw it out of the boat. I said, there's nothing slowing us down. You know, there's no, everything's going for us. Um, and then I got home after that world champs and I got a rigger jigger and I spray painted it gold because uh, I wanted to win a gold medal at, at the Tokyo Olympics. So I, I set aside a spanner four years ago specifically to drop at the start line. Um, and so that was a pretty special moment getting to the start line and, you know, looking at that spanner and going like, wow, this is something that I'd almost, I'll never forget. I want to keep, but part of it is that I won't keep it. You know, it's gone. Yeah. Um, it's a bit like, it's almost a kind of a nice metaphor for the whole experience. You know, 
the experience is gone. Uh, it's over, but you know, a bit like dropping the spanner. Like I'm not gonna never forget that. So mm. yeah, it was yeah, it was really powerful, and, but also so energetic and exciting when I did yeah. it. You know, it was like I'm ready. Here we go. And can you remember what you said to the girls when you said you got? you sort of g'd them up to get the juices flowing can you remember what you said or is that just like you know you in the moment yeah um you know i think we were in a huddle um and i pulled down my mask and i took my sunglasses off and i asked them to all take their sunglasses off um because i think one of the biggest things with the mask is that and as well, because it's, you know, we've got masks and sunglasses on. You don't really have that facial interaction with people. And that's such a huge part of that emotion. So I asked them to take their sunnies off. They kept their masks on. Um, but, you know, and then I just looked at a few of them and I pretty forcefully asked them, like, right, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? It's like, right, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go out there. I need you to uh, nail this warm up. This is what I need you to do. And I was, pretty forceful um, and quite physical with even a few of them. Um, and then I spoke about just quite briefly, because it's really important to keep that quite short and, you know, sharp. Um, and then, I, you know, I mentioned the fact that um, this is this is our moment to to really either step up or step down, you know. There's, there's a chance for anyone to win. Um, and, you know, why shouldn't it be us? We've done the work. We know we're good enough. So there should be no doubt in our mind. So, you know, I asked that, why not? Why shouldn't we be able to do it? Um, and then made a couple of comments about Australia and, you know, the fact that we're very lucky and, you know, that this is the best country in the world and have a few more swear words in there, a little bit of touch. And, um, and uh, we have this, you know, the, the, uh, the Netflix show, The Last Dance with mm -hmm. Michael Jordan? Yes. All they do, they say, what time is it? And they say, game time. Um, and so we had a... We had an analogy for our crew and we, we were the truck. So once a truck speeds up and gets to speed, it's really hard to slow it down. You know, nothing stops it. And that was our analogy. Once we get up to speed, you know, there's no stopping us. We're just going to keep going. And it's going to be hard for us to, you know, it's going to be hard to come through us. You know, if you come through us, you're going to have to, you know, really be on your game. And that was a bit of something that we said and, used to say before race, I'd say, what time is it? And then, you know, I was, I screamed, I said, what time is it? And they'd say, truck time, who? You know, and that was, that was pretty energetic. And you go, like, oh, I'm ready, I'm ready, I'm ready, I'm ready. That's great. And what did your coach say? He, he gave a couple of simple, um, you know, technical, technical reminders. Like, he loves the idea that, you know, when we get to that Olympic final, I'm not going to say things that are different. Like, it's almost going to be boring because you want to know exactly what I'm going to say and I'm just going to remind you. And so we had a nice relationship of he could really take that um, slightly less emotional but very clear cut um, exactly what we wanted to do. And then I was able to complement it by giving short, sweet, extremely emotive and, and arousing sort of moment. And I, I remember after he did it, he just sort of like, gave me a high five and he was just like yeah you know like let's go <laughs> were you nervous yeah nerves are different for everyone mm -hmm. um for me uh i'm i don't like 
what what are nerves? Some people get really nervous to the point where they can't breathe or their you know their body starts to shut down. They feel like the walls are closing in. For me, um, you know, I've never been a particularly nervous person that doesn't rise to that occasion. You know, like when the pressure comes on, um, that's really when I sort of do my best work. Um, I've almost struggled to perform at my best when I don't have the pressure. Um, so I really, really enjoy that pressure and that energy. So I think to say, was I nervous? Like probably, but I was also just more, I was just more excited and determined, you know, like I'm sure nerve was part of it, but the emotions that were really the biggest emotion was excitement, arousal and, um, you know, determination. Like I was not going to not have a really good race that day and I wasn't going to let anyone else not have a good race either. Did you sleep the night before? Well, when I, as I'm coming down to weight, it becomes more and more uncomfortable. Yeah. So I, um, you know, I, I, I start to struggle to just get to sleep um, and my sleep quality definitely decreases quite dramatically um, just because I have, it's just more and more uncomfortable and, you know, stuff like my heart rate starts to drop lower and lower because my body's almost going like, what are you doing? You need to be eating more food. You need to be drinking more water and sort of starts to like go shutdown mode, which is, you know, like I'm pretty lucky with a lot of the doctors and I have great monitoring and, you know, always safe and looked after. But, you know, like my standard resting heart rate is probably 38, 39. Um, but then, you know, on the day of the final, it was 32. Uh, so like body is just getting slower. But, um, I do a lot of napping throughout the day because I just don't really have that much energy. So I always just sleeping through the day so that when I'm down rowing, I'm really energetic, really excited. Um, you know, I don't try, I don't drink coffee in racing because it dehydrates you. So I have caffeine supplements in caffeine pills. So, you know, that sort of replicates that same stimulation and then go home and sleep after. So. And what did you learn most from the experience? There's plenty of things that I learned from a rowing specific point. Um, there was a lot of affirmation about what I already knew. Um, you know, some things that we had to learn again. Uh, there was plenty of technical things that were reinforced. Um, not too many new lessons entirely, but possibly um, a reinvigorated importance on certain things and and the placed importance on what what what's really really important um but then you know in a, in a non-rowing non you know technical specific nature i think some of the things that i've learned was like pretty you know how amazing the journey and and this is and what a privilege it is you know um like one percent of one percent even get to go um, and when you're in it, you don't really get it because that's your job. You, you don't consider, I don't, you know, one considers themselves to be 1% of the 1%, like with normal people who, you know, like to drink wine when we can or train and this and that. And so you don't really consider it when you're there, but then after, um, especially when it's gone, you start to really understand like how incredible it was mm. uh, and it will always be mm. um, just, yeah, it's difficult to really put into to words, but 
you know, it just sort of gives you another, just, uh, it really teaches you to appreciate what you've got and just, yeah, enjoy the moment because you never know when it's gone. Um, and yeah, so it was, it was, it was pretty special. Did you learn anything about yourself personally? I think that I, especially through a little bit of failure, um, I think it definitely confirmed with me um, that I need to be always, you know, through my rowing and through my coxing, but then really just in life in general, um, don't ignore your weaknesses, but also play to your strengths. Mm. Um, And if you're, you know, not really true to who you are or you're sort of almost pretending, um, then when the pressure comes on, you're not going to be able to sustain that. Um, It's like the lie always comes out sort of thing. Mm. You just can't, it's, you just can't hold it forever. And so when you, when you're trying to perform under uh, pressure and you have to be someone or something that you're not, it's really just, look, there's a certain amount you can do it to. And at this, you know, at the Olympic Games, the pressure is at the highest point you'll ever, like there will be no pressure like the Olympic Games. Uh, And so just that affirmation that you need to stay true to yourself and remember what your strengths are and really play to those strengths. Mm. So, you know, you don't ignore your weaknesses. You're aware of them and you always try and work on them. But if you lose what you're really good at, um, you know, you're going to have a hard time really succeeding. So there's certain things that I'm really good at um, and that's, uh, you know, engaging with others and being an energetic person and and really enjoying the moment and and being being loud and getting the most out of others. And um, so just, just that affirmation that you know that's who I am that's what makes me you know really good at my job and also special as a person and um so you just have to remember that forever because um you know that's what I'm good at so it's great it's great advice you're in quarantine now hotel quarantine almost out of quarantine how are you getting through how are you getting through quarantine um not too bad you know the first week wasn't that bad uh we we were always on the phone to each other and FaceTiming, you know, other members of the team and we were watching all of this other sport together, uh, which was so much fun. So, uh, and then probably towards the end of the games when sports started to tailor off, it started to get a bit grim and you're a bit bored. Um, you know, thankfully I've started a new job coaching in Melbourne. So I started to do some work with that um, and that took, takes up a bit of my time and, um, I've got an ergo in here that I try and get on most days, but you know we just stay in contact with each other. I'm always on the phone with people who want to, you know, like want to say good day and support me, and so like, it's not been too bad actually. What are you looking forward to once quarantine is over? Well, I think um, I'm not sure if I'm going to go straight back to Melbourne. I think because they are in lockdown, I might try and nick off to Queensland. I've got some friends and family there, so. Might try and hide in Queensland for a little while and as soon as Melbourne looks like they're about to go back open, I'll get back down. But um, I think the biggest thing is just going to be getting back and, and enjoying life and, and seeing friends, yeah. seeing family. You know, um, I'm still going to be heavily involved in the sport, uh, still competing myself um, and uh, I'll be coaching. So I don't really feel like I want a break from the sport because I just enjoy it so much. But um, a break from the intensity of training would be really nice. But I think just seeing 
seeing friends and family and enjoying each other's company again is just going to be fantastic. So, yeah. yeah. And, and then what happens to the to the eight? Do you all disband and when do you get back together? How do, What happens um, post an Olympics? And do you have a next big competition that you have your eye on? Well, um, yeah, I mean, we would have had all these parades and all this sort of stuff, mm. but obviously that's not going to happen. Um, and with all of the different states in various different points of lockdown and border closures like really it'll be i don't know when we're going to see each other again um in terms of next competitions um you know uh, there's nothing really set in my mind that yet this is what i need to be going to um there's obviously paris there's world champs there's making teams again and so um i haven't set too many like goals and standards but um you know, hopefully we can catch up together soon with, you know, everyone on the team and, and uh, you know, see each other again soon. But I think, um, yeah, it could be difficult with um, this COVID world that we now live in. Yeah. And then finally, I'm sure this is a question everybody is asking you. Do you have your sights set on Paris? I went into the Games not saying this is going to be my one and only, this is this, this is that. Like I didn't have any expectations. Um, and then obviously with the extra year of not competing, it does dawn on you how uh, difficult it becomes and how much you sacrifice. And, you know, maybe there's doubts that come up in your mind, like, is it worth it, this and that? I think getting there, competing, I don't know how I'm not going to go. Like, you know, I just, I have the itch so bad. Um, and I 100% want to be going and going better in Paris. I think it's going to look different for me in this next cycle. Um, you know, I've committed to a new job, which I really want, I really like, and I'm really looking forward to. So I'm going to have to give that a certain amount of focus. Um, there's other parts of my life, you know, whether it's uh, relationships or anything like that, you know, there's, there's going to be juggling involved. Um, but to say that I wouldn't want to go and be a part of that experience again or even go one better uh, at the Olympic Games would just be a total lie. Mm. So, yeah, I've definitely got the – I reckon the permanent marker might have to come back out and Paris 2024 might be written up on the whiteboard. I think that's a good goal to have. We'll, we'll look forward to seeing you there. James Rook, rookie, thank you so much. We're so super proud of you. Um, I'm so privileged to be able to speak to you. And as I said, it was so lovely to have a connection of someone in Tokyo and it was great in our house to say what time is rookie rowing and we all sat around the television. So we're looking forward to having you come visit us too when all of this um, finishes. So, yeah, thanks so much. Oh, man, thanks to you, Anne. Like, the support from everyone, um, like, far and wide has been unbelievable. And it's, it also doesn't go unnoticed, you know, when we're there. You know, it really does feel, we can feel all that support. And, you know, you might not reply to every single message that you receive, but it definitely doesn't go unnoticed. So, no, I really, really appreciate it. Thanks heaps. Well, that brings an end to my conversation with James. There were some really great messages in that conversation and the things I'm going to think about are don't ignore your weaknesses, continue to work on them, but play to your strengths. If you try to be someone you're not, it can work for a while, but when the pressure is on, it's impossible to sustain. And 
always remember to stay true to yourself. Thanks for listening. We love sharing these real stories, so please like, subscribe and share this episode with the people in your community. Feel free to reach out if you want to find out more or have a story to share of your own. Links to get in touch and other great resources are in the show notes. These podcasts would not be possible without a super production team. Big thanks to the team at Martino Consulting for producing this series of Realising Your Potential. Your Potential.